If you would, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as we continue studying the Sermon on the Mount and this introduction to it, the Beatitudes. As we did last week, I'll begin reading in verse 2 and read through verse 12. you don't know how to get around a Bible and you're using the one in the pew, Matthew 5 is on page 809. This is what the Spirit says, And Jesus opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we long to be among those who are blessed, not only in the position we have with you, but day by day, that we would live a life that is blessed in the way that Jesus says it here. We pray as we look to your word that you will speak to us, that you will teach us. God, we pray you will shape our thoughts so that they match your thoughts that we will think your thoughts after you, that we will love what you love and hate what you hate, that we will hear and understand and obey and live in light of what you say. We pray all of this for the sake of Jesus Christ and in his name. Amen. So this morning we're going to focus in on verse we are on the second of these Beatitudes, these statements of blessing. Yesterday marked 20 years since terrorists attacked our nation and thousands were killed. Maybe this week you asked someone or they asked you, where were you on September 11th? And following those kinds of questions, various stories of that surreal day are shared. It was a time of loss for our nation. Sometimes it's compared to Pearl Harbor, but for most of us, Pearl Harbor is a chapter in a history book, or it's a movie we've watched, or it's a memory of a parent or grandparent who shares it with us. I mean, we, we know it was awful. But our hearts break in a different way for this. 
because we remembered all the pictures as they came. We remembered the footage. We remember planes flying into buildings and buildings collapsing and a death toll that wouldn't stop rising. September 11th was different because we remember it as part of our lives, as part of our experience. So we look back on it and we're shocked all over again. We're angered all over again. And we mourn all over again. Probably like many of you, I watched memorials yesterday and went back and watched old footage and thought about that day and listened to accounts and listened to interviews and sadness just welled up in me when those bells rang marking each of the significant events of that day. It was just sad all over again. We know what it is to mourn. And honestly, we'd know it even if the attacks of September 11th never happened. Death claims spouses and children and friends in, lots of, in, in, in a lot of ways. But death isn't actually the only thing that causes people to grieve. People grieve losing their jobs, losing their careers, losing the business they started. Children will grieve changing schools from one to another or will grieve when a friend they've had for so long decides, I don't want to be friends anymore. Many grieve after they're permanently injured or when they're diagnosed with a prolonged illness. Grief comes when people move to new cities or move away from family and friends that they know and love. People grieve bankruptcy and foreclosure and other financial hardship. Single folks may grieve that all their friends seem to be getting married, but they don't. Couples grieve infertility. Parents grieve rebellious children. Children grieve divorcing parents. We're not unfamiliar with grief. So we have a kind of reference point when Jesus starts to talk about those who mourn. But when Jesus talks about those who mourn, it doesn't immediately make sense to us because He says they're blessed. Now, do you remember the word blessed from last week? When Jesus speaks of a blessed person, He's talking about someone who's flourishing. He's talking about someone who's in a condition worth celebrating, a privileged condition. He's talking about something good. So it doesn't make sense to us to, to equate mourning with something good, with blessing. I mean, as a society, we don't like sadness in general, do we? We want to stamp it out. We want to turn that frown upside down. If you don't believe me, just be around a baby when that bottom lip pokes out. And notice what every single adult does around that baby. They'll do whatever it takes, silly or humiliating. It doesn't matter. They want the, the child to smile again. They want to get a giggle out of them. And we certainly don't like mourning. Saying that exact thing, Don Carson once said that mourners are wet blankets. We want those who mourn to get past it, 
to cheer up, to get back to a good place, back to normal. But that's not what Jesus wants. Not in this beatitude. The verb mourn here is a present participle, which in the Greek language means it is an ongoing action. Jesus is saying that those who continually mourn are the ones you should envy. Now that's even more confusing, isn't it? What is Jesus talking about? Well, let's get to the bottom of it. First, by seeing that true Christians mourn. True Christians mourn. Now, I say true Christians because that's, in essence, what Jesus' sermon is all about. It is a vision of the Christian life, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. To to read the Sermon on the Mount is to read a description of the true Christian, and you should read it all of it together. It may have been the first time you actually read it all together just a couple of weeks ago, but it would actually be a good thing if you just read the whole thing through each week as we're going through this series. It only takes about 15 minutes to read it out loud, but it's worth your time to get the whole thing set in your mind because it's about true Christians, and Jesus is telling us that true Christians mourn. Well, well, I want to figure that out by asking a few questions. The first one is, what is this mourning? What, what is the kind of mourning that the true Christian does? What kind of mourning is enviable? What kind of mourning is worth celebrating? What kind of mourning is blessed? Well, it follows in the same pattern as the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You'll remember that doesn't refer to something natural, but spiritual. It's not about financial bankruptcy. It's about spiritual bankruptcy. The poor in spirit recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they can't contribute anything to God or to their salvation. They can only receive. They are beggars at the hand of God. And as I said last week, all of the other Beatitudes flow from this one, and that is never so true as it is with this this second Beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. You see, the poor in spirit recognize their spiritual poverty, and those who mourn weep over it. This is not a kind of natural mourning because you've lost a a spouse or a child or a job or a friend or a career or anything else that might be something you lose in this life. It's grief because you've lost God, lost your relationship with Him, lost His blessing. It's actually a loss that affects all mankind and affects even creation itself. It's mourning over sin. But we don't instinctively mourn over sin, do we? Do you know what we more naturally do? More naturally, we make excuses for sin. 
We explain it away. We rationalize it. We justify it. We, we make it seem understandable, even acceptable. No, 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 no. But if you'll just understand what was going on, then you'll understand th- th- why I did what I did, which implies that I won't actually be wrong in what I did. But not only do we make excuses for it, we, minima- we minimalize it. We want to make it look smaller than it actually is. We want to convince ourselves and maybe others that it's not that bad. It's just a little pride. It was just a few office supplies. It's just cheating on homework. It's not like it's a test. It's just occasional drunkenness. It's just a little flirting with that other woman. It's just occasionally clicking on those websites. Those kinds of words, occasional, little, just, those are words we use to minimalize things, to make them look smaller than they actually are. But here's the thing, you can't make excuses for sin or minimalize sin and mourn sin at the same time. You can't do those things and be blessed as Jesus talks about. The mourning Jesus talks about is a deep and abiding sadness over sin. We mourn as the Spirit shows us our sin and brings conviction to our hearts and moves us. But here's the thing, even though that is what's primary in our mind, we should actually not only mourn our sin, we should mourn the sins of others. We should mourn the condition of the world. We should mourn the fact that it is infected and cursed by sin. This is what the psalmist writes in Psalm 119 when he says, My eyes have shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Do you know how the political realm responds to sin? Attack. Use it to my advantage. Laugh with a kind of evil villain laugh and rub my hands together because I've got him now. Friends, we need to beware of such things. We need to beware of seeing the sin of others as an opportunity for ourselves to gain an advantage. We need to beware also of satire about sin. We need to beware of laughing at sin. Laughing is a very disarming thing. And it will make you think things about sin that aren't actually true, that this sin is actually funny. It's not condemning. It's hilarious. Beware of poking fun at false teachers. These folks are leading people to a path of eternal hell. Beware of making a joke out of what dishonors God. Christians mourn sin. They don't mock it. It should break our hearts. 
It's not only the loss of life on a day like September 11th that ought to cause us to be broken. It's the fact that we live in a world where such things happen, where men and women are convinced that this is a good thing. And men and women are convinced that responding in hate-filled sin to sin is a good thing. There's plenty of sin to go around, isn't there? There's plenty. There's so much that in essence our eyes should never be dry. It's a deep and abiding sadness over sin. Well, second question is why, why would we mourn? Why would we mourn sin? What drives it? What's the motivation behind such mourning? Well, we don't mourn our sin because we think, I should be better than this. I should know better than this by now. We don't mourn our sin out of a sense of self-pity or self-loathing or because we've disappointed ourselves once again. In other words, the, the true Christian doesn't mourn sin because he thinks much of himself. The true Christian mourns sin because we think much of God. Mourning is motivated by God. Mourning, our mourning over sin is motivated by knowing God, by knowing His holiness, by knowing His righteous, by understanding what He says about sin, His hatred for it, knowing that sin produces death, knowing that it makes us liable to judgment, knowing that it breaks our fellowship with God, knowing that it deserves hell. The best example of this, by the way, is the prophet Isaiah, isn't it? He's given a vision of God. He sees the Lord exalted on His throne, and the train of His robe fills the temple with glory, and angels are surrounding, and they're covering their eyes, and they're covering their mouth, and they're covering their feet, and they're crying out worship to Him. And when He leaves, you know what He doesn't do? Woo! What a worship service! I tell you what. He doesn't walk away rejoicing. He's not like, now that's what church ought to be like. I tell you, I get fired up every time. No, 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 no. He doesn't get pumped up. He gets pushed down. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I wonder if when we say we want to experience more of God in, in a particular worship service, if we understand what we're actually saying. Because usually what it seems to mean is I want to feel, I want to feel the, you know, the, the holy tingles at some point during the service. I want to, want to sing the songs that I like, and I want to, I want to hear, hear something entertaining. I want to just feel it, you know, just feel it. Well, Isaiah felt it. Did you ever wonder that if we actually had more of God in this, among us, more a sense of an awareness of who God is as we sing, we'd probably have more tears? We'd have more of a heavy heart at times? 
You see, for Isaiah, seeing God in all His glory exposed his sin. It exposed the filth in his own soul. It's like, it was, it's, it's like taking a flashlight to look under your refrigerator for your child's favorite toy car. As soon as the light goes on, you're aghast with the filth because most of your life you choose to ignore the filth that's under there. But then you see it. And what happened with Isaiah is that the light of God's glory shined on the filth of his soul. We mourn when the light of His holiness exposes our sin, exposes our filth, exposes how far short we continually fall of the God who has loved us, who deserves our worship, who demands our soul, our life, and our all, exposes how much we just give Him leftovers and not my soul, my life, my all. We mourn because of who God is. The third question there is, well, what's the right way to mourn then? And that's the logical next question. We know what mourning is. We know why. But what's the right way to mourn? How is it that we should mourn? And it actually implies that there's a wrong way to mourn. That there's a type of mourning, sadness, sorrow, and grief that Jesus isn't actually looking for here. And help in understanding that comes from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 when he distinguishes between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, godly grief and worldly grief. Worldly sorrow, you see, focuses horizontally. Worldly grief focuses on my world. How does my sin affect me? How does my sin affect my friends, my family, my grades, my career, my health? How does my sin affect the way that other people think of me? Now, sin does bring consequences in the here and now, in our worlds, no doubt about it. But worldly sorrow makes those things primary, makes those things the things we need to fix, makes those things the things we need to pay attention to. And that's where it goes wrong. Godly sorrow focuses on God. How has my sin dishonored God? How has my sin trampled His glorious name and reputation? How has my sin affected my relationship with Him? Those are the kinds of things we ought to be doing in mourning. Our tears are full of those questions. Not focusing on what's broken in my world, focusing on what's broken between me and God. That's the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about. That's the right way to mourn. So, I mean, consider David, right? David, in addition to killing Goliath, the other thing that David is very, very famous for is sin, right? His sin with Bathsheba. So, here is David. He lusts. He commits adultery. He steals a man's wife. He has the man's man murdered. The baby conceived in sin dies. 
The nation he rules goes into chaos. I mean, David's sin messed up David's world, didn't it? And what is his confession before God? Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It doesn't erase the reality of any of the messed up world. It prioritizes the most important thing that's messed up. And that is fellowship with God. And the outcomes of godly grief and worldly grief are vastly different. Paul writes, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, worldly sorrow, sorrow over my world, it's not a lesser form of mourning. It's just flat-out wrong. It leads to death. The only way to salvation without regret, Paul says, is through repentance. And the only way to repentance is to have godly sorrow, sorrow that is focused on what's happened between me and God. So, husbands, when you sin against your wife, the first point of reconciliation is between you and God. It's not just if she forgives me, all is well. You understand that? We miss that. It's right, and it's so good for us to focus on making relationships right. But the first wrong was done against God who says, you ought to treat your wife in a way, da-da-da-da-da. And when you violate that, you first violate His glory and then violate her through that sin. The same is true when we sin against friends. The same is true when we sin at work. The same is true when you cheat on a math test. The first sin isn't against the teacher or your parents. It's against God. If the greatest concern is what will my parents think when they find out, and that's the only thought you have, it's not godly sorrow. It's worldly. True Christians mourn. They mourn their sin because it dishonors God. They mourn their sin because it puts a rift in that relationship. The second thing to note here is that true Christians are comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, when we we grieve over anything, we instinctively want comfort, right? We want to be comforted. And the same thing is true when we grieve over sin. And we're going to talk about where that comfort comes from, but the longer that I thought about this, the more I realized there are actually some false comforters out there. The places that we think comfort lies that we go to that aren't actually comforting at all. They don't achieve what Jesus is talking about. And so I'm just going to name five of them. You can extend the list, but I'm just going to briefly name five just so you get the kind of idea of what I'm talking about. The first false comforter is blame shifting. Don't seek comfort in blaming your sin on something or someone else. Blaming it on a lack of sleep. Blaming it on a hard day at work. Blaming it on how you were raised. 
blaming it on uh, the person who provoked you. None of that actually gives comfort to the soul because no matter the circumstances, we are responsible for our sin. So it's a false comforter. The second false comforter I'll mention is comparison. Boy, don't we sometimes feel better when we compare our sin to other people's sin? We think, this is not actually that bad compared to all the things that other people do. But James chapter 2 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So don't fall for the little white lie defense. It's just a little white lie. It's just one thing I didn't claim on my taxes. Don't fall for it. The third false comforter is distraction. Distraction. Don't, don't, don't try to comfort yourself out of mourning over sin by distracting yourself, by turning on the TV, by going to YouTube, by exercising, by getting on your to-do list, by doing some extra work, by reading a, reading a, a novel that you're reading. Just anything besides thinking about this problem, and I'll feel better. Hand in hand with distraction is the fourth one, which is time. If I just give it some time, I'll feel better. Just in time, I'll get back to normal. You see, the the problem with distraction and with time is that they have a numbing effect on the soul. It's like Novocaine. If you were to walk into your dentist this week and you had a mouthful of cavities, and you said, Doc, I don't really care about fixing any of these cavities. I just want you to shoot me up with Novocaine, would you? Would you just give me as much Novocaine as my body can handle, and I'll come back for more when this pain comes back? Would you just do that? Because you'll walk around and your mouth is numb, and yeah, you'll have problems using a straw, but you'll feel like all is well when actually you're just numb, and distraction and time numb the soul. A numbed soul will never repent. A numbed soul will never find comfort with God. A numbed soul will just seek more numbness. And as long as I don't feel the pain, it must not be important for me to deal with the problem. A fifth false comforter is restitution. I'm going to make up for what I've done. I'm going to stop on the way home, and I'm going to get her some flowers. I'm going to treat the friend that I hurt with extra kindness for the next week. I'm going to clean my sister's room for a month. That's a good suggestion, but that's not going to comfort your soul. I mean, doing good for others is good, right? And there are times when our sin requires us to to make restitution. But restitution doesn't fundamentally bring comfort to the soul. Just trying to outweigh the bad that you've done with the good doesn't actually bring comfort to the soul. You see the kinds of things we're talking about? You could probably, I had like a list of 10 or 11. Some of them overlap, but I thought you might not want to hear about 10 or 11. So I just narrowed it down to five. 
But I just kept thinking about ways that people, when they mourn sin, they'll just do anything to not deal with it in the way they ought to deal with it. So enough with the false comforters. True comfort lies with God alone. He is the, the comfort doesn't just happen. It's not that our mourning naturally produces comfort. God does something. There's a song out even now that just basically says, if you'll just cry it out, everything will be okay. That's absolutely a lie. If you cry it out, you know what you'll get? Cry it out and still have a problem. It doesn't fix the problem. But God comforts us. Our mourning, our crying doesn't in itself comfort us. God does something. When God sees our godly sorrow, when He sees our heartache, when He sees our repentance, He comes to us and gives mercy. Psalm 51 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And Psalm 34 tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. The good news is that the Lord doesn't leave us in our mourning. When we have godly sorrow over sin, He comforts us. He forgives the sin that we mourn. He cleanses us from the unrighteousness that breaks our hearts. Forgiveness is God's comfort. He says so in Isaiah chapter 40. Listen, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The fact that iniquity is pardoned, the fact that sin is forgiven, the fact that it's been dealt with, that should bring comfort to God's people. Because here's the thing, when you know that sin is your greatest grief, then you know forgiveness is your greatest comfort. When you know that sin is your greatest grief, you will know that forgiveness is your greatest comfort. And God has provided that comfort in Jesus Christ. I mean, let your mind go to the Garden of Gethsemane. There's Jesus, and He takes Peter and James and John along with Him, leaving the others behind. And Mark records that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled, and He said to them, "'My soul is very sorrowful.'" even to death, remain here and watch. You see, Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus knows that the sin of man will be laid on Him. Jesus knows that the wrath that sin deserves, that He will endure it on the cross. He knows the kind of death that He will die, and He mourns. He's sorrowful even to death. 
Jesus took on the sorrow of our sin. He died in our place. He made atonement for us, for the sin that breaks us, for the sin that has broken our relationship with God, so that all who mourn will find in Him the comfort of forgiveness, the lifting of the burden of sin, the relief from its guilt, freedom from its shame. And as it were, this comfort comes in three stages. First, there's initial comfort. There's the comfort that comes when we become Christians. I've just described that. When when the soul knows forgiveness, when it calls on the name of the Lord to be saved, when we know what it means for Jesus to be our Savior. And if you don't know that comfort, if you don't know what it means to call on the Lord, I pray that you will. I pray that you'll repent. I pray that your sin wouldn't just make you sad that you're not as good a person as you hoped. I pray that your sin would make you sad because of how it's, how it's broken your relationship with God and that you would turn from it and turn to Him knowing that He gives mercy and grace and that He will forgive and that Jesus says all who come to Him that He will in no way turn them out. If you come to Him weeping, you won't walk away weeping. You walk away comforted. That's what you need. More than comfort for anything else in your life. You need comfort from the sin that oppresses and condemns and constrains and shackles your soul. But we also have continuing comfort. You see, as Christians, we hate sin. We avoid sin. We fight sin. We strive to put sin to death. And yet, we continue to sin. And so we continue to mourn. We continue to weep. We continue to be broken over it. We continue to have the light of God's glory expose what's wrong. And we continue to repent. We keep mourning, and He keeps comforting. And part of our growth as Christians is that this mourning actually grows deeper because we understand sin more fully over time. And as our mourning grows deeper, the comfort of Jesus grows sweeter, doesn't it? Oh, it was sweet the first time you tasted it. But the longer I serve Him, the sweeter He grows. Isn't that true? I wonder if that's part of your regular experience as a Christian when you see your sin. Do you mourn it? Because you won't know this continual comfort unless you mourn. Initial comfort, continuing comfort, and then there's eternal comfort. Eternal comfort. You see, on the last day when Jesus returns and wrong is set right and these sin-cursed bodies are glorified and we take up residence on the new earth, the Bible tells us He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Yes, there will be no more death, and there will be no more mourning, but you know what else you will never mourn again? Sin. 
because the former things will be fully and finally and forever passed away. Do you want that comfort? Do you want to be blessed? Friend, the only way to have a condition that's enviable, a condition worth celebrating, is to be one, not who is up with arms raised, but one who is bowed down with their face to the ground and tears wetting the floor because of their sin. They shall be comforted. And because they are comforted, they're blessed. That's a condition worth celebrating. The condition of a broken soul finding comfort in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that the truth of these words, the words of your Son, will sink deep into our heart. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Thank you for the certainty that they shall be comforted. Thank you that is not something we wish for, we hope will happen, there's a chance, but that we shall be comforted. And I pray that you will give us grace to continue to see our sin and to hate it. God, we pray that you would make us mourn when we sinfully make excuses for our sin, when we sinfully minimize our sin and we don't respond to our sin the way that you would have us respond. We pray that we would be a tearful people, that our hearts would break over our own sin that our hearts would break over the sin of those we love and those around us, that our hearts would break over the sin that continually shows itself in mankind, that we would mourn for all that sin has brought into this world. And we thank you that in our tears we know that there will be a day that you will wipe them away forever. We long for that day. But until the bridegroom comes, help us to be those who mourn. We pray for Christ's sake and in His name. Amen.